Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me, producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchase is made through our links. Give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We covered a lot of great movies that were adapted from other material in season 10. Our originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals is where listeners can purchase the source material behind all our adapted film discussions. It helps support the show at no extra cost when you buy through our links. In our foreign language Best Picture nominees series, we looked at several adaptations, including Z, The Postman Il Postino, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Letters from Iwo Jima. We hit the high seas with In the Heart of the Sea from Nathaniel Philbrick's nonfiction book for our Aquatic Killers series. Eh, definitely a weaker entry in that series. I bet the book is better. Oh, me too. Member bonus episodes featured adaptations like Gone Girl, The Russia House, Ivanhoe, The Hot Rock, The Big Heat, and Naked Lunch. Oliver Stone brought not just original stories, but also adaptations like Conan the Barbarian, Scarface, Year of the Dragon, Eight Million Ways to Die, Talk Radio, and Born on the Fourth of July. Mary Heron's disturbingly insightful American Psycho was adapted from the Brett Easton Ellis book. You like Huey Lewis in the news? Oh my God, it even has a watermark. And of course, more Stephen King with The Mist, The Green Mile, and The Shawshank Redemption for our King a la Darabont series. Find links to all of these books and more adapted films on our Originals page. That's thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports our show. Get the full list of books that we've talked about and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Talk radio is over. 
you're a meatball. This country is in deep trouble, people. This country is rotten to the core, and somebody better do something about it. I want you to take your hand out of that bowl of Fritos, throw away your National Enquirer, and pick up the phone. Go ahead, pick it up, hold it up to your face, and dial 555-TALK. Open your mouth and tell me what we're going to do about the mess this country's in. Talk radio. It's the last neighborhood in town. People just don't talk to each other anymore. Let's go to the first caller. Uh, Night Talk, Agnes. Yeah. I love Lucy. Now, why don't they make more of them? Those shows are ancient, Agnes. Lucille Ball must be at least 105 years old. The rest of the cast is dead. <laughs> Barry Metrowave's going to be picking up the show starting Monday night. Link it to a national theme. We have a very special guest with us. Kent is the classic American youth, energetic and resourceful, spoiled, perverse, and disturbed. Did you say that's an accurate description, Kent? Barry, you should ask me if you want to have a guest on the show. Why? Because I'm the boss, Barry, that's why. All you have to do is just be nice, okay? Now, easy, Barry, you're part of the problem, you see. I don't care what you think! No one does! He's going down in flames, Dan. So what? You get the package, I sent down to the station. See, if I were you, I'd have my pretty assistant give the police a call. Take the bomb squad about ten minutes to get down Bomb squad? Why, why, why should I call the bomb squad? Tell me something, I, I, I'm curious. How do you dial a phone with a straitjacket on? <laughs> We don't often plug other shows. If you're not a subscriber to the Master Feed, I highly encourage you to check out the Film Board uh, podcast. Because it's your show, Andy. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Because you just did, we didn't get a chance to talk about it, but you just did uh, Raya and the Last Dragon this weekend, which is going to go, it went live already for members. It's going to go live by the time you hear this. It will have been live for a a little bit. But uh, this is just an opportunity to remind everybody that... If you're not a giant fan of every single episode we post every single day, <laughs> you don't have to be. You can subscribe to each one of our series at the next reel in their own uh, private feed uh, in iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, that includes uh, Silver Linings, our new show uh, with Ray Lancey and Ocean Murph. That includes uh, Film Board uh, that Andy Nelson is now uh, shepherding uh, for 21, 21 and beyond in perpetuity throughout the universe. Uh, it includes Trailer Rewind, Steve uh, Sarmento and Justin Yeager. And uh, it includes uh, just uh, everything. And uh, Marvel Movie Minute Season 3 launches to the public on March 8th. By the time you hear this, it will have already been out, but... Just know that your daily dose of Marvel uh, with our dear, dear friends Kyle Olson and uh, Rob Cabosco is out there. It is in the wind, and you can subscribe to that too. All available in their own separate feeds, and uh, we encourage you to do so. Hope it helps. Hope it helps. We know we we churn out a lot of stuff, but hope it helps. Talk radio, Andy. This is a surprise of a movie to me. A surprise of a movie to you. Yeah. Now, yeah. see, you you judge me for saying things, you know, <laughs> when I when I comment on these movies like, yeah, it was fine. It worked. And you you say, you know what? When you say things like that, it sounds like you're you're you have quibbles. And when you say that, it sounds like you have quibbles that you would like to discuss. No, I'm guarding my <laughs> I'm guarding my opinion because I this is one of those movies that uh, it it hit me in a funny way, and I'm trying to like I'll, I, every hour that goes by since I have seen it, I 
I find myself liking it more. Can I tell you something, Pete? Yeah, I really want to hear. Because I, I had never, I had never seen this movie before, and I think you had never seen this, right? Right, right. So this was another new one for the two yeah. of us. Yeah, this may be. Well, I, I can't say it's my favorite Oliver Stone film, but um, but it certainly is now way up there in the tops. Like everything about this worked. It was, I just thought it was spectacular filmmaking, spectacular storytelling, spectacular performances. I loved it. I completely, completely loved this movie. (laughs) And I can't believe that I've never seen it. Like Eric Bogosian was on fire through this whole thing. I just, it it was, it was such a surprise. And it said a lot to me that my wife who, who told me before the movie started, I asked her if she wanted to watch it with me. She's like, no, I don't, I don't, it doesn't sound like anything I'd want to watch. I started watching the movie and she came out and sat with me and she watched it through to the end. And she's like, that was so much better than I was, yeah. than yeah. I thought it would have been. And I feel I think, like I've been yeah. punked with this series so far. <laughs> and it makes me want to go back. This movie makes me want to go back and re-rank movies like Platoon. Like I, this movie solves all the problems that I have had with other Oliver Stone films. And I loved it. I loved it, yeah. but I've been I've been nervous. I'm so glad. I feel like I've been Stockholm syndromed a little bit. You know what? Like with all the other <laughs> movies, I've been thinking to myself, God, am I just crazy? Like Oliver Stone's a big famous guy. Like I should just like his movies more. Maybe that's it. So I I liked this movie so much when I saw it. I was riveted to every word, every monologue, every camera move. And then I thought, well, clearly I'm nuts. Because there's no <laughs> way it, Oliver Stone in the 80s would turn out a film like this. Well, and there's no way, I was thinking, there's no way a film like this would not get the recognition that uh, that it should have, because yeah. it's like no one was talking about this film. And I don't know <laughs> if it was because the whole idea of this type of character, like, I feel like a lot of people who saw the trailers for this movie probably reacted to just the trailer and didn't go to the theater, like all the people at the at the game where where uh, the character of Barry Champlain goes to like be the you know the guy who's going to like you know throw the first ball or whatever whatever it is at whatever event he goes to, and everybody boos him, <laughs> you yeah. know. And I'm like, yeah. I feel like that's probably how audiences reacted at the idea of a movie about these shock jocks. Yeah, yeah, I I, I think that's probably right. All, they they're just controversial personalities in general. Like yeah, writ large, right? right? They they exist. That's, that's one of the, my favorite lines. Is you, you, the Baldwin part of the great Baldwin monologue? You hang up on people. That's your job, yeah. uh, it, and that that's it. Like they exist in this space to be controversial. And I think when you think about Howard Stern, he's he's sort of the pinnacle of of this. Even though the the movie itself is the not so fictionalized, um, you know, story of Alan Berg you know sort of shoehorned in there by i think stone but the talk radio it, it's all about these guys who live on that bleeding edge of the curse of the platform of radio of live hour after hour radio where you know you have to have such stamina and such just intellectual cognitive stamina to be able to meter what comes out of your mouth at any given point and ride that line between controversy and uh just and and running afoul of standards and practices and in fact insulting people so much that they rise up against you yeah. uh and and that is i i think for me and maybe it's more terrifying for me because you know like we do we get on the microphone every day and talk to people and there are 
thousands of hours of our voices out there on the internet. And I don't remember everything I said. And I think that's one of the things that he talks about. He's like, I don't remember. I don't remember these people from day to day, minute to minute, right? They call over and over again, but it's pretty quick for him to to kind of move on to the next thing. He exists so much in the moment. And uh, and so I think so much of this movie exists as my nightmare, <laughs> right? <laughs> but but it does beg the question, the, the format itself, like there's just so much of this that that is that hinges on the format, right? I talk to my kids about talk radio and they're like, well, isn't that podcast? I'm like, well, kind of, but not really. I mean, it's live radio and it's live opinion radio and it's it's ephemeral. It's just, it exists and then it's gone. And uh, so what you say matters for an instant and then it's gone. But but even as podcasts and, you know, all these live streams, YouTube live streams are, are sort of, it's, it's, predecessors or what is it precursors no and antecedents <laughs> antecedents <laughs> is that the word too many words uh they come after uh none of those seem to have the same kind of inherent risk and publicity i think because there are there's so much noise in the media ecosystem right now that there were some of these guys in every city that were the biggest right they were the personalities and they were known they had like civic identities uh, and I, I don't know. I think it's it's harder to find those people in that platform anymore besides Stern. And, and you know, I guess you could you say like um, super partisan political jocks um, still have yeah. kind of their, their cable news has taken on a lot of those. But it's just different now. And, I, and so I wonder, like, how much of the how much of the story, how much of the drama and the trauma is in this movie is because we get kind of what we grew up in that that time when shock jock radio was so huge it was a definite thing uh just i mean just the whole idea of the talk radio where people could call in you know i mean i remember i mean dr ruth was big at the time you know these various shock jocks every radio station like you said every town every city had the people that you could tune into and i mean to a certain extent just the general radio djs have certainly take on some of that like i think a lot of just the nature of the djs they have they still keep that call-in element where you can call in and request songs and stuff but they do all sorts of things to kind of keep that communication going but yeah this this idea of the talk radio with the the longer conversations with these especially this type of person who wasn't the the uh, you know, and uh, like going back to the conversation you had about uh, that Alec Baldwin had his monologue about all of his different people that he had for mm -hmm. all the different types of audiences and how this particular character was a piece. It was one of the pieces that needed to be there. It was the piece that came in in the evenings and allowed for kind of that more uh, edgy bit of radio that really pushed people's buttons. And yeah, I mean, I, I remember tuning into these types of shows when I was young, just listening to the ones in my own area, because they were kind of fun and funny to listen to how much they would push people and how edgy they could be. And it was it was just, I don't know, you, you're at certain ages and these sorts of things are kind of fun to listen to. And, you know, even Howard Stern, I mean, I listened to for a while. And, you know, I, I don't know, I for me, I, I certainly hit a point where I was just like, I am kind of done listening to this sort of garbage. You know, it just it just it becomes too much to hear it all the time, you know? 
I did. I did listen to. I listened to a lot of Loveline. You remember Loveline? Uh, yes, it was. It was something that wasn't quite Doctor Ruth, but was a little no. more uh, for a younger crowd. I guess. Well, I would yeah, say. it was. It was ribald. It was. It, it was on like all all of our kind of alternative stations. It was on like I think adult talk radio, but it was. I I got it on our kind of alternative station, and uh, it was Adam Carolla and Doctor Drew. And they would take, you know, love and sex advice on the yeah. show. And it, it ran forever. And it, in fact, it might, it's been rebooted a number of times, but I think it, it started in the eighties, uh, in the mid eighties. And, um, so through the eighties and nineties, it was my like high school, college talk radio experience. It was like listening to these two guys, um, talk about sex in a way that both was Adam Carolla sort of ribald kind of joking kind of you know his his comedic personality and Dr. Drew who's a doctor and <laughs> talking about like you know the the real stuff and so i feel like weirdly i learned a lot about sex and sexuality on that show and I, it really represents the relationship for me that listeners can have two radio personalities. Uh, and it's why podcasts to me are so important because they're so intimate. Like they're just, I I, I don't, I, like they're so in your ears. Like even though we run a live stream, I don't often watch the live stream of the other shows on the networks. I prefer to like listen to them. I'll stream them, but I'll just turn the video off and listen to them because I like what's going on in, in that relationship. And I think that, that, place that exists between headphones and ears is the place that they captured in talk radio that riles these callers up that is so perfectly you know uh, uh, attuned to that emotional resonance that gets people so angry that they will fight you about it it's huge it's great it it really is i mean i i i think that in context of setting kind of the tone of the era, I think that they capture that really well because it really was also, I mean, this, I think the idea of talk radio, this type of shock jock talk radio also really took off. I mean, I guess a, a, a lot of the time because of the way that things changed in the eighties, right. With the, uh, I mean, I think a lot of it also goes to kind of the TV, just the way that TV and everything shifted as far as the news and what they, you know, what they had to do and what they didn't have to do. And I, I think that it allowed a lot more of this sort of stuff to to become a lot more shocking. And yeah. because of a lot of the politics and everything at, on the rise, and you, you already brought up the whole thing with Alan Berg, um, who, you know, for people who aren't familiar, he was a shock jock uh, DJ in Denver, in the Denver area. Who did you was ever listen? Do you ever listen to any Berg? Uh, I he he was killed when I was um, you know eleven, so I hadn't tuned in yeah. to any of any of the stuff that he did. But he certainly was. I I don't know if I remembered his name, but I always kind of remembered. Oh, there was there was a shock jock radio guy in Denver who was gunned down by neo Nazis by these people right. who um, you know he was Jewish and um, they it was the white nationalist group the Order. And they gunned him down because of uh, things that he said. And so it was there was a lot of you know controversy in the 80s about where radio was going with this, I suppose. And as you said, Howard Stern obviously kind of took it to another level, um, certainly in, in more in the sexual direction than in just the political pushing direction. But I think that 
it still was big. And I think this film captures that. It captures the essence of that so well in all of these phone calls that he has and just in the the nature of what it takes to be this type of person. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. And and I, we should say, just in terms of background, this is a, something I find absolutely fascinating. I've never seen or read the play, the original play no, uh, yeah. and uh, that Boghossian wrote and starred in. And he uh, he did it with his uh, wrote it with his friend, uh, Tad Savinar. Uh, it, it was originally produced in Oregon and New York. What? What? Oregon? <laughs> My fair right. state? Nobody does <clears throat> premiere plays like this in Oregon at that time. <laughs> I, I don't know, from nothing. Uh, but I, this is what I, I found interesting. Like, the book that comes out, this is the Stephen Singular book, uh, Talked to Death, um, which was about the, the life and assassination of Alan Berg, was coincident to the play, right? It was just an accident that Bogosian wrote this story that was already... Uh, essentially telling the story of Alan Berg before the Berg thing happened. And then this book comes out and tells a story and Boghossian says, I can't believe it. Like, that's that's an amazing thing. So when they started making this, to, going down the road to make the movie, they secured the rights to the book in order to uh, sort of put the more of the Berg stuff in in there and to make it, you know, that's where the order comes from, all of yeah, that. And in the right. play, nobody dies at the end, right? I mean, it's... Yeah, it's, it's just uh, one night over the course of him talking. It's his show talking with, you know, about all the stuff like, the sh- you know, now the show has been sold to this to yeah. national syndication and all that sort of stuff. And so it certainly still has the edgy edginess, but yeah, it didn't have him getting killed at the end. Um but you know, and and there were things that I think, when you listen to Bogosian talk and Stone talk about everything that happened from Eric Berg, I think both of them were drawn to different elements of the story. And like you said, it certainly seemed like Stone was drawn to the political side of things and the shooting. And Eric Bogosian even says Oliver wanted the shooting death. I said, and this is, I think, I, I think really strong. He said, I said that I believe the story arc had to be completed before the guy got killed. And it should be like the way John Lennon died in that your celebrity is what causes you to be killed. I couldn't let it be like a punishment for what he had done. He had come to a reason where he understands that he's been wrong, but by then he's sowed so many seeds that he must die. It's more like a Greek, Greek classic. Yeah. And I think that says a lot about that whole thing. And But that's that's really where Stone was seeing it. And and Boghossian really thought about the inner guy and everything. And, and for him, it was really, he wanted a lot of the connection to be about the ex-wife and everything. And so I, I think that they found a really strong balance between all of that and just the way all of it unfolds. I, it just, it, I, I think it was, uh, it, I don't know, it surprised me at every turn. Yeah, me too. I, I want to just call out, Principally, this movie celebrates sound as a just best-in-class platform. And I don't mean just the fact that it's about radio. I mean that they use sound mastering and mixing at a level that is just just beautiful in the form of storytelling. Characters talking over one another, characters talking in different spaces across the studio, characters using the way they use sound and voice through the microphones and beyond the microphones and in the speakers around. There is a lot of overtalk in this thing. It's, it, it, you know, you can see sort of Bogosian as kind of that that mammoth class of uh, uh, kind of the way um, the way they use language in and speaking in this thing. It feels like 
to play, but to be able to adapt it and to use sound and layering the way they did here, I think is really exceptional. Do you notice anything there? Oh, it was throughout the whole thing. I just kept writing down notes like, wow, the sound design is really incredible. Like like you're talking about the layering of voices, like you would hear him in a conversation. And then all of a sudden, we were following a different conversation because like the producer was talking to, uh, you know, the owner or something like that. And those, you, so you're like, okay, I'm listening to this conversation, but that other conversation still playing underneath and, and all the sort of stuff. Plus, you are getting these fantastic, I mean, this is where Oliver Stone really started he was before this, like in Wall Street, I noticed this, but he started playing around with capturing little details and giving them the sounds and everything. Like when there were certain calls, especially from um, kind of some of these more uh, the characters that I w- would assume were the along the lines of the ones who gunned him down, it would focus on just that red light, the on air light, and Ugh. it would turn on. And it, but it would almost like you'd hear that. Of the light as it the kind of started warming burns. up, yeah, yeah, exactly, and like you'd hear that, and it would play, and it was so close up, and just like Stone was capturing all those little elements, just making everything unfold like this environment is alive, and there is energy in all of these elements, and just uh, like yeah, it all worked, and the music, the way the music was incorporated throughout too. Um, I wasn't that impressed with Stuart Copeland's music last week when we talked about Wall Street, but this week, again, I don't think it's a score I would listen to, but it was very much an element of this world. And It's a soundscape. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. God, I just, I just love it. I just love it because every single word that is uttered that you hear in the order which it is presented to your ears moves the story forward. And that came to me in some surprising places. One of the most surprising places I want to take a step back. <laughs> is that <laughs> the very first thing that pops up on the screen is Cineplex Odeon Films. <laughs> right. What? Uh, that's that's that you know that surprised me too but i was looking at it, i'm like gosh, they have been around or they were around for a while i should say mm-hmm. they were uh around starting in the late 70s in 1978 and they lasted until 98 and mm-hmm. they uh were well they were i should say they were folded into alliance atlantis and then i think now their library is owned by echo bridge entertainment which is part of amc theater weirdly so i don't know how all that works well that was the strange thing it seems like it's very naughty in the whole uh distributors filmmakers theater chains kind of mess yeah and that's the thing that surprised me cineplex odeon films because i had only i only really have have sort of memory of cineplex odeon as the theater chain right and so to see the films but andy my goodness uh they uh, one of my very favorites, as you know, was the science fiction hit film Cube, yeah, which in Canada right. was released under this banner. Uh, here, it was Trimark. Can I just say I, I'm surprised that that's the one you pulled as their as their label? I totally you thought not you were going to say I was going to say Sign of the Times. That's the one I was expecting you to say because yeah, you're a, such a Prince fan. I am such a Prince fan, but you know yeah. what? It's just, it's about the music, man. It's just the music. I don't, I don't <laughs> notice anything else because in the beginning he's in the alley and like, oh, you and doing the fight and he's witnessing that it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. They were also behind Last Temptation of, the, of Christ and uh, The Grifters, which is fantastic. Mr. Mitch, Mrs. Bridge with, uh, with, um, 
Paul Newman and his wife. Um, they also, uh, in addition to this, um, the Care Bears Adventure in Wonderland, which I know there's probably a big Huge. <laughs> crossover of fans. Well, and now it's all uh, a, a mark that we may be more familiar with, which is uh, Entertainment One. Everything's now been folded into Entertainment One. And uh, so you have films like Wild Rose, which we've done on the show, and and Wonder, and uh, yeah. Water Diviner, <laughs> and Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets. That was one of your favorites. Trumbo. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, just the way these companies get uh, folded yep. up. But, you know, I'm thrilled that at least th- the important thing is that these companies do get handled by somebody because unfortunately there are still these companies out there that that retain rights to certain properties that don't um that aren't able to get released because the the companies are defunct or went into bankruptcy or whatever and the films are locked up um unable to be released until things get sorted out so at least it's on a label in my notes i wrote in all caps uh split effing diopter oh yes andy this movie this is a classic for use nay potentially overuse although i never got tired of it of (laughs) the split diopter can we talk about that it is everywhere and i have to say i mean we've talked about split diopter uh, i swear we bring it up every time we see it because we love it so much yeah uh certainly in um uh all the original motion picture I was going to say all the president's men because there's yep. a lot of it in there too. But I don't know if I've ever seen a split diopter use that's actually the center strip, like the center third as a separate focus from the left and the right thirds. Yeah. And that was something new to me and very exciting because we have a moment where we have Laura on one side and Dan on the, like she's on the left and Dan's on the right. And then Barry's in the middle. Yes. Deep down in, in his uh, recording in the, in the studio. And I was just like, wow, that is, that's fantastic. It is really fantastic because like the diopter has to, like they have to work around his magnificent hair. (laughs) His hair was so all the time. And I thought, okay, this is, it's very eighties hair. And then they flashback to him selling suits and he's got a lion's mane. Yeah. That was crazy. And that was really funny because that was like the most Howard Stern uh, hair of all, which was also before Howard Stern was a thing. So it was really funny that these things like were crossing over in such weird ways like that. Yeah, this movie was absolutely prescient. It it almost felt like Howard Stern saw this movie and thought, (laughs) I could I could level up Howard Stern with a little bit of champagne. Exactly. Yeah, you bring up the split diopter, which is fantastic. I just have to say, in general, the camera work was fantastic. I mean, the way that Stone and Richardson were playing with these sorts of elements of like depth of field and these split diopters and camera movement and reflections. I mean, he's in a studio with glass windows on three of its sides, and they find ways to use them all in really fascinating ways with reflections of different people on them or uh, you know, shooting through them and also just the way that they were playing with lighting. I was like, it's it's almost like they were saying, hey, you know what? This is based on the stage play. Let's be theatrical with it because there are moments where you have two characters lit and then suddenly like the lights dim on one person, dropping them into black to shift your focus just to the one person. 
And I was just like, wow, this is alive. Like they are allowing this to be really like in your face production and just kind of pushing things. I just, it was thrilling every second. Yeah, I think so too. We've got some screenshots of the, of the cover page with Oliver Stone's notes all over it. Have you looked at this? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love it. Big masters, diopters, reflections, diopters underlined, exclamation point, split, steady cam and luma, rear shots, bury, boom, up and down, quote, taxi driver, dissolves inside, seems as talking, same time conversation, right? Shoot light bulbs, colors, flashing, intersects on calls, superimpositions, images on glass. Uh, Ellen, Linda, Dietz, Dan, Act 3, Dietz, Pacing, Track, Over. Like, I'm reading this list of his hand scrawl, Mm -hmm. and I am so deeply impressed that everything that is in this list, they accomplished in this movie. Like, they masterfully nailed it and uh, you know one of the one of the pieces of research is this article talking about like um oliver stone and it's titled you know talk radio a uh, uh, quote a chance to develop technique right, right oliver stone yeah. on talk radio that's what this feels like this feels like all the stuff that he's been throwing at the wall in the last you know seven movies we've talked about and it, it really feels like oliver stone took this material took a step back and whittled it away and just carved something really lovely out of the source material yeah it's 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 pretty incredible um just all of these different elements, yeah. uh, the, the sound, the image, uh, it all works together. And uh, oh, it did, and I don't know if I mentioned, but they actually pull off really spectacularly the idea of putting the actor on a rotating stage as the camera is also kind of moving yeah. around. And so you have this <clears throat> in that last monologue of Barry's, you have this rotating set that he's on as you kind of are spinning around with him almost in this whirlpool and it was just uh just kind of a spectacular visual moment it it really is i'm so glad you said that and one of the one of the things that stone had said was that you know um early on we realized that that eric bogosian the actor and writer um was he was not really a film actor he he didn't have some of the mechanics of film acting under his belt and so the first few days of of the shoot was you know really training for him how do you do the things we need you to do under the constraints that we need you to do them like for example racking a steady cam essentially to you you know, shooting your face and have you still deliver what you need to deliver while you're walking around the studio and having this thing hanging off your chest. Those are the kinds of things that they ended up doing, putting cameras in in crazy places. And, uh, you know, it just made me think, God, I, this is a movie that I would I would kind of love to have the same intention on this story done today with the cameras, the size they are now, you can put cameras anywhere you want to put them. You can put them on all kinds of different faces and and see what what they could do with this kind of story. I thought it was wonderful. That I, I thought that rotating desk was just masterful. Like I, it was dizzyingly good, especially as they unveil the people behind him. Right? It, it's mm-hmm. not. It, it was just like there are other things going on in the background that that are being revealed to us that i thought were were really really great similar to to i think the camera work that we discussed in the hot rock which you know what is going on what your main focal position is is uh is to 
follow this actor to reveal stuff going on behind you, to reveal Dietz with his head in his hands, to reveal Dan with his arms crossed, to reveal Ellen as she's picking up her jacket and leaving as you're watching Barry do this thing. Yeah. Um, really beautiful. Yeah. And what's funny is because, you know, filming in this small studio space, I mean, even though it seems like a really luxurious studio in context of film production, it still is a tight space in which to work. And Oliver Stone said it actually uh, was he was looking forward to the opportunity of filming in it because he knew that Born on Fourth of July was going to be his next film. And he said it it would um, allow him to get used to filming in a constrained way because of filming with a wheelchair so much in that. And he actually said later, the wheelchair didn't seem like such a big deal after being stuck in that effing radio station, yeah, which I, right. <laughs> I think is kind of funny. Um. One thing that was interesting to me, and maybe this is out of out of order, the ideology in the film is it's big, right? This the whole idea of hate and xenophobia and um, loneliness and the people who call the racism and white supremacy and all of those things, and they were obviously real issues in the media landscape, as they are real issues in the media landscape today. Um, that we're we're still dealing with. And yet, when you listen to Eric Bogosian talk about the sort of primacy of the narrative and what he was doing in this in the story, in the play originally, it was to talk about a guy who, you know, is is dealing with the the curse of doing what the audience wants him to do every day every night for hours at a time and eventually losing touch with what he wants to do because he becomes so subservient to this audience. I find that really interesting that the first thing you ask the guy who created the thing about is not the massive caked on layer of hate that undergirds the entire story, but it's really about the loneliness of this man as he has lost control of what he wants to do in the world. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, it's very interesting because, and I think that speaks to a lot of the different direction that both uh, Bogosian and Stone came at this story with. And because I think he was able to really kind of keep that inner struggle that this character is going through, because that's definitely there. And Stone obviously has his ideologies and the political stuff, and I can really see him pushing that sort of stuff. And I think that quote that I read earlier speaks a lot to this, the fact that Bogosian was fine doing this story about, you know, kind of this shooting and everything and kind of where he ends up over the course of the story. With the caveat that he had to go through this other thing first, he had to he had to sort himself out, and I think that it's 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 powerful watching Bogosian kind of deal with this. And when he hits that monologue at the end, and and he is kind of it's this explosive rant that he has about everything, only to shift it at the very end, as if he's kind of come out of his <laughs> a fugue state. One could say. And realizes, you know, where he is and, and just kind of almost turns it on a dime to just turn it back into, oh, this is just all part of the show, which everybody, of course, conveniently just seems to love, which I thought was so telling of the way that people react to this sort of thing. Yeah. I thought that was just really strong, just the way that that he allowed that character to to deal with that. And I think it was smart on Stone's part to allow that to be 
a big driving part of this character, that it wasn't just about these ideologies and everything, but it was about this character. And again, I haven't seen the play. I can't speak to it. But I think Bogosian, from reading his thoughts on it, he was pleased with how this how this shifted. And I know some people really felt like this uh, adaptation changed too much of the play, but I don't know. He seemed pretty happy with, with how it worked and, and how it still allowed that to be there. I, I think it's interesting because it, it sort of defines their their relationship. Um, can, can we read a passage from Raritan's book? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, about the great walk in the desert. <laughs> uh, and, and we should say, I, I want to say as a preamble, that so much of, of Stone's filmmaking seems to be, like on set filmmaking, seems to be this sort of aggressive journey to getting in the face of the principal actors and uh, muscling them up to the point that they give you the performance that you're looking for. They give him the performance that he's looking for. And I think this is one of those that maybe takes the metaphor perhaps too literally. <laughs> so, again, according to Bogosian in Ryden's book, Stone caught a flu or cold and couldn't get rid of it. Stone gets Bogosian with their wives and kids to drive out to a remote desert location near a reptile museum. Stone tells their wives and kids to go inside and that Bogosian and him are going to take a walk in the desert. There's a path by the museum. They walk down the path into the desert, far out. They go by a sign that says, no water after this point. They arrive at a dry gulf of a riverbed filled with stones and stand there. Quote, he's not saying anything and he hasn't said anything. We're spending a lot of time with each other and he's not talking about himself or about his life or anything. He sat down on the rock. I sat down on the rock. The sun is beating down on us. I think I'm sort of getting what this guy is about. He's got to test you. I know what he wants. He wants me to whine. He wants me to cry. He wants me to say, I'm scared. I knew about Platoon and how he hammered those guys. I wouldn't have wanted to go through that. He wants me to say something like, what are we doing? So I figure if he's not going to say anything, I'm not going to say anything. We sat there for 15 minutes, boiling. To what end? I don't know. I'm still not sure what we were doing exactly. And then he says, okay. And then he walked off. And that was it. <laughs> we bonded in the desert. It was like walking with Jesus or something. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, I know Stone was sick at the time. I don't know where his head was, but it it, it sounds like um, it sounds like the walk in the desert was maybe not as illustrative of the journey as he needed it to be. <laughs> Then again, maybe it's all they needed. <laughs> yeah, or maybe it's also, yeah, it's all they needed. <laughs> it's pretty funny. So funny. So funny. So, um, I mean, you, you brought up, I mean, it's worth talking about the assassination at this point, because, I mean, it was certainly yeah. the big element that um, was added. Um, we we hear several people on the phone who sound pretty unhappy with, uh, with the sort of talk that Barry has. Um, it, I don't think it's ever really called out as to it being specifically one of those people. I mean, we, I think, safely can assume it was probably the one who sent the the dead rat and the letters and stuff like that. But does it matter? Do you, do you think that it matters that we never really find out in the context of the story? And that it just ends on him dying and then kind of... The end of the film I thought was pretty interesting. It's just the city at night with just voices of other callers coming in after the fact, after he's been gunned down and stuff, yeah. including voices of his, the people he's worked with, his ex-wife, all that sort of stuff. I think uh, I when I when it first happened, 
it was telegraphed. I knew the story of Aaron Berg. I knew it was going to happen. And then it happened and I was angry. Mm. I didn't want it to happen that way. Yeah. Uh, I have, I've, I've come to my senses and I think it was the right thing. I also think it's the right thing not to be clear who the assailant was. Yeah. Because I, I feel like if they had given that away, then it would have been about plot. That would have served plot and it would have turned the whole movie into more of a whodunit. So you would find yourself naturally trying to retrace the steps or, or retrace the calls and whose voice was what? How can we match those up? Um, and it, I think that would have damaged the overall story, which is he was divisive. He upset a lot of people. The job killed him, right? Yeah, right. His personality killed him. It doesn't matter who did it in the context of this film. I don't know you. I felt the same. I, I felt like that's not the point anymore. The point isn't who killed him. The point is really it's it's the way that he was. It was the, yeah. the talk. I mean, that really is what killed him is that he pushed so many buttons of so many different types of people that if it wasn't this guy, it could have been a totally different person who would have done it. You know, he's infuriating these different potentially dangerous people who uh, are dangerous. I mean, geez, even Kent, when he came to the studio, the kid could have been a violent person. He, We have a shot of him reaching into his coat pocket to grab something. We think, oh, is he going to actually have the gun yeah. and kill him? It turns out he's just some fanboy taking a photo, but he very well could have been another dangerous threat. And it's just, and, and I think that was an interesting element about Barry, the way that they created this character, is that they made us realize this is a dangerous person. Like he's, he's, he's almost, I don't want to say he has a death wish, but he certainly is not happy with where he is in his life. Like he's kind of in this dark place because of this dark work that he does. And when he gets that package, he's not, he, he basically tells his boss, don't you dare call the police. This is my show. I'm going to do what I want. He opens it right there. And it's not a bomb. It's just a dead rat. But I mean, that's pushing it. That's being a very edgy and dangerous person who's living on the edge. And uh, I mean, he was definitely a character in a very dark space. Yeah, I, I think it is. I think it was just it, it is an examination of that loneliness. The fact that we do know from reading the cast list who the killer is and that it's credited to an actor by the name of Rockets Red Glare. Uh, is only icing on the cake now that I've actually watched it. Originally uh, born Michael Mora in New York City. His name is Rockets Red Glare. Died in 2001 at age 52. He was an actor actor and stand-up. And apparently he was the motel clerk in Big. <laughs> yeah, right. right. So uh, that, was, that was pretty gruesome. All right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you want to run through the cast just real quick? Yeah, absolutely. It's a um, small cast. It's not, I mean, obviously there, it's a much bigger cast if you take into account all the various voices that we get, but uh, I, yeah, I don't think Yeah, a lot of voices. Many yeah, of them doubled and tripled up by the performers who called in. Yeah, so. right, right. Um, but yeah, Eric Bogosian, I think we've been talking about quite yeah. a bit. Uh, you know, I've only seen him, I don't think I've seen him in a ton of things. Most recently, he was in Uncut Gems, and actually he was fantastic in Uncut yes. Gems. Absolutely, I thought he was one of those people who should have had a supporting actor nom for that, because I just, his performance was very 
uh, quiet. I just loved him in that film. Um, and I feel like maybe the only other thing I've seen him in is uh, Under Siege 2, Dark Territory, which is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I love that movie. Uh, I don't know. What about you? Uh, you, you know, that's one of those things. I, I, he's one of those actors that I feel like I know, but I just don't know a, a lot of his work. And watching, you know, t- hearing him tell the story, uh, there, there's a wonderful hour-long interview with him at the the new school in the theater department, and they're talking about, you know, him as an actor and his craft and how he how he started. And I just love, I, I love it so much because he, he talks about what he did to get started and said, you know, I came out to New York and I was trying to to figure out, you know, all of the, all of the ways that the business worked and and uh, he he credits somebody else saying you know what what are you doing waking up every morning and you're totally obsessed over this one job it's the only job that you can think about you're just waiting for your phone to ring when a week ago you never you never knew the job existed it was just not a thing and so my mentality was i found these like this this like warehouse of performance artists and we just created stuff and we were trying to kind of make names for ourselves uh, by creating our own things and so he he wrote this play and starred a, and and cast it with a bunch of um of uh, Latin Latin actors, Latin Latin actors. <laughs> what am I? Uh, and uh, and he had them translate his script into Spanish, which he did not speak. And then he made them do the play. He had them do the play for an audience of English speakers who came in and did not understand Spanish, and to have them them you know, just experience the story without the the barriers of language. And for that and other acts like it, he was kind of labeled a performance artist. And he 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 actually is of the same time and and talks about Laurie Anderson. He, she was doing her first bits of of work at the same time. And and so he's in this this cast of performance artists, but really he's just an actor and was trying to make a name for himself and doing the work every day. Stuff he was excited about, he would go make. And I love that spirit so much yeah. that he's not just hustling for the next job that somebody else has made, he's creating. And it made him, uh, you know, it, it sort of forged him into this fantastic writer and uh, 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 I think a great performer. And he's been in a ton of stuff. Uh, I just haven't seen enough of it, right? I mean... I love this yeah. list in, on Wikipedia, and I haven't. I, I need, we need to go look at it. But it's like he has been featured in films by such directors as Woody Allen, Robert Alt- Altman, Taylor Hackford, Adam McGoyan, and Agnieszka Holland. What? When do you get a list like that together? What party invites those people at the same time? <laughs> right. That that yeah. Venn diagram is Eric Bogosian. Yeah, I was just looking at his list, and I'm like, oh, of course, he was in uh, Dolores Claiborne. That's yep. the Taylor Hackford one. He was in uh, Deconstructing Harry. That's the Woody Allen one. He was in Beavis and Butthead Do America, which yep. I, I think was quite funny. Um, he was actually an uncredited uh, supermarket clerk in The Stuff, which I just rewatched and just I, I love that film to pieces. So, yeah, I mean, he has been in quite a few uh, films as you kind of look at it. I don't know which of uh, the films he did with... Um, uh, Adam McGoyan, it was Ararat. I don't know what he did with um, with Altman, though. That's uh, interesting. Uh, when we talked about Al- Alec Baldwin, um, he's great here. This is really, I thought, a fantastic 
precursor to him in Glengarry Glenn Ross. Like I just 100%. loved him in this role. Yeah. 100%. His monologue, it's a short little monologue, but his speech to Barry is perfect. And you can tell this is why he gets the roles he does because he's so natural at being this kind of character. Yeah. Uh, even as a young man, he exudes such authority, such sort of just like brooding, bullying um, energy uh, that it just works. And yet you can tell that just how important this show is. But as as his character unravels over the course of the, the film, you realize he has no affinity to Barry beyond Barry's value as a product. And uh, I, I think he was just terrific. This was a busy year for him, too. I mean, his first film was a year before in 1987. It was Forever Lulu, which I never saw. But in 1988, he did this, Working Girl, Married to the Mob, Beetlejuice, and She's Having a Baby. Yeah. That's yeah, a busy start to a career. And then 89 was Great Balls of Fire, and then 90 was The Hunt for Red October. So, yep. yeah, I mean, that's and that's where things really started uh, picking up for him. So, yeah, hmm. crazy, yeah. talented guy. Uh, we got John McGinley, John C. John C. McGinley. He's back. He's done, I, I think hearing Stone say it, we six films. He'd done six films uh, overall with um, uh, in some way, shape, or form to the point where McGinley uh, was talking, I think it was to Riordan, who said, hey, if you see Oliver, tell him I'm his good luck charm. <laughs> and uh, that he wants to work with him again. I love John McGinley as Stu, the um, the engineer. I think it was great. And I think, I don't know, I don't know what happened. Like, I, I, I don't know if, if McGinley was originally in radio, working the engineering role, um, but he had a, a real sort of practiced affinity slinging tapes. And for anyone who's ever slung tapes, uh, it can get confusing and obnoxious and but I just love the way his hands moved over those things. Well, and he does a great job of just like carrying the phone like on his neck as he's just like, yeah. you know, wait, waiting in between totally. calls and stuff. I thought that was totally funny. natural to me. What are the, okay. So, so we've seen him so far in uh platoon and wall street and this, do you know what else he's done with, uh, with stone? So platoon wall street born on the 4th of July talk radio, Nixon, any given Sunday. Yep. And uh, McGinley was in the stage play. Yeah, he and Bogosian were friends. In fact, he warned Bogosian. <laughs> He's the one who said, be prepared right. when it comes to working with Oliver Stone. Right. So, right. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Uh, so, <clears throat> so good. John Pankow is Dietz. He's one of those faces that uh, is a guy that you recognize. He's a, he's a that guy. And I think he's fine here. I mean, he he doesn't have a lot to do other than be the looming corporate presence. But I think that he does that fine. Yeah, but wait a minute. What was the movie that he was in that I loved a lot? I was assuming you were going to say you loved him because he was spent so much time in Mad About You. That's what I assumed. Well, of course, he was a, he was a friend in Mad About You, and I, I loved it. He was in the um, the remake of Twelve Angry Men. Um, oh, that was a theater performance. What was it? It was the monkey one. Monkey Shines? Monkey Shines. Was yeah, that the him? same year. Yeah. That was he him. Was in, he was in Monkey Shines. I loved Monkey Shines. Did you? I don't think so I've seen weird. Monkey Shines. I adored it. And so the moment he walked in, I immediately started thinking about that that monkey. And I thought, <laughs> I hope, please, please let my memory be right that this is this is the same. 
Deeks. That's hilarious. Yeah, so good. So good. And uh, Mortal Thoughts, Year of the Gun. I've actually seen a lot more more of his stuff than than maybe I remember. Oh, To Live and Die (laughs) in L.A. Yeah, Uh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, he was great. All right. Uh, We've got some fantastic female performances. Leslie Hope plays Laura. She's the producer slash girlfriend. And she's one of those people that, I mean, I thought she carried the role well. And she had some great... Um, lines in here. Like, I loved her line about, you know, you, you know, I, I try to be your producer and you treat me like your girlfriend. I try to be your girlfriend and you treat me what, like your wife. That, that, I mean, she, she's constantly trying to like manage the different things about him as a producer and she, he won't let him. And I thought that that was, uh, I just, I liked that. You know, she's really fighting in this part and fighting in this relationship. And he just, he is just, you know, he does. It's almost like he's constantly, you know, pushing people away. Well, they never over dramatize the love triangle, right? It would have been really easy to get soapy drama out of the three of them. And they never did. It was really just adults dealing with their their relationship issues. And I thought that was really special. It was it's hard for everybody. And uh, it never it never became maudlin. She's another person that I, I've seen in things like she's a kind of a supporting character, um, like she was in crimson peak but it's like i don't remember her very well because i think she largely works just as a supporting character yeah what about ellen green though holy cow let me just tell you my uh my experience with ellen green sadly may be limited to a little shop of horrors in which i love her i think she's just fantastic in that film and then to see her here i'm just like whoa that is just not what I was expecting. She's so different, yeah. um, but just great. She's I, I just really like her as this ex-wife who still loves who he is, and but you know he's just a terrible person who pushes people away. And uh, that scene when she calls him because he needs somebody, and then he just like just crushes her. It's just like yeah. oh, wow. I, I like I I was really impressed with her, and I just love seeing her in things um, because I'm just like, oh yeah, she is a person other than than Audrey. Yeah, I I uh, loved her obviously in this. She was in Pump Up the Volume a couple of years later. That was uh, Christian Slater. Uh, another story about a guy on a mic, uh, underground uh, radio. Right. I, I loved that movie a lot. I, I haven't seen it in years. I think I need to watch it again. Uh, Naked Gun, thirty three and a third, a recent pick on um, sure. our, our Sat Matt uh, show. Uh, the Final Insult, which was uh, just given her a chance to be comic, and possibly one of the one of my most disappointing cancellations in television the show pushing daisies uh which i loved and it i think it was around for exactly one season and it was uh maybe two it was really fun and um just a great conceit with a lot of wonderful people in it it was it was canceled nobody loved it because it was too smart yeah yeah and she was in it there you go we should also just mention she was um matilda's mom in in leon the professional professional. yeah so yeah all right. Ellen Green. All right. Um, and, oh, and then I just have to say, Michael Wincott <laughs> was the crazy kid. And it was really funny because I started recognizing his voice when he was a voice. And then yeah. I'm like, I, I know who that is. Who is it? Who is it? And then when he showed up, it took me a while. And finally, I'm just like, ah, I recognize you, Michael. Um, it's the hair. Rock it was, and roll. <laughs> it was, his, it was uh-huh. yeah, yeah, he was great. I, it was fun to see him pop up in this. Yeah, it was great. 
I think Bogosian is, he's, I think he has a nice, this is one more piece that I wanted to read to Bogosian because I think he, he speaks well of the experience. Uh, and uh, I, I'm very proud of it. I'm very, very happy that Oliver worked with me on this. Uh, I learned a lot from Oliver. If my performance is strong in the picture, I credit that to Oliver because he knows what he wants. He doesn't know, he doesn't always know how to get there, but he isn't going to stop until he gets there. He'll pound you until he gets what he wants. I think that says a lot says, about him. Says exactly what he yeah. what's written on the tin. All right, so we've talked about camera, we've talked about music. Um, I just want to bring up the editing real quick. Um, it's it's a different person in the editing chair for this particular film. This is kind of a shift uh, for Stone, and now we have David Brenner editing with Joe Hutching as co-editor. David will go on and work with uh, Oliver on a few more films, like. Uh, the next one, Born on the Fourth of July, The Doors, Heaven and Earth. And then, uh, but but Joe Hutching, he'll also kind of continue with Stone through those, but then he also takes uh, lead role editing, starting with, with JFK. And he goes on with Pietro Scalia, who on this film was just an assistant editor. And the two of them are the two editors who are behind JFK, which... I, I know that the editing of that particular film got a lot of talk because of how it was cut together, a lot of kind of um, intercutting and, and interesting editing kind of leading to reveals, things like that. So uh, it's interesting to see those two names pop up in here, not as the editor, but clearly as people that would click with Stone's style, especially how it's being developed in this particular film that would essentially lead to the whole feel of JFK. Interesting. Yeah. We got some other other. What are we calling this? It's not sequels and remakes now. We've changed the name. Other iterations. Is that what we're doing now? I think other iterations of this story of 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 this story, not necessarily this particular film, yeah, but Alan Berg's story. Um, okay. There was a film in night or a play made in 1988 by Stephen Dietz called God's Country, and then a film version of that called Betrayed, and that was kind of based on the incident. Same thing with the, the film called Brotherhood of Murder. And I'm unfamiliar with those, but I'm curious about them, especially since Tom Berenger, who was in Betrayed with, I think, Deborah Winger, he says that is uh, like his favorite performance that he's done. So hmm. I'm actually kind of curious about that yeah, now. Yeah, very curious about it. Also, Alan Berg, if you want to learn more about him, in the documentary, in the in the PBS American Experience documentary, Oklahoma City, his murder is brought up in that. And then, of course, as as Pete mentioned, um, if you want to read more about his life, there's the book Talked to Death, The Life and Murder of Alan Berg by Stephen Singular. Not Thanks plural. In the show notes. Stephen Singular. No, Stephen Singular. Yeah. That'd be funny if it was Singulars. <laughs> <laughs> All right. How to do an award season. Uh, again, it was not a film that got a lot of attention, unfortunately. It only had three wins, five other nominations. At the Berlin International Film Festival, uh, Bogosian did win the Silver Berlin Bear for Outstanding Single Achievement for his performance and screenwriting. Oliver Stone was nominated, but lost the Golden Berlin Bear to Barry Levinson for Rain Man. At the Chicago Film Critics Association, Eric Bogosian won the Most Promising Actor Award. At the Film Independent Spirit Awards, uh, Oliver Stone was nominated for Best Director, but lost to Ramon Menendez for Stand and Deliver. Interestingly, Menendez was Stone's first assistant director on Salvador. So interesting how these oh. things play out. Um, 
Robert Richardson was nominated for Best Cinematography, but lost to, uh, to The Unbearable Lightness of Being. And uh, Bogosian lost male lead to Edward James Olmos for Stand and Deliver. And, and that is a spectacular film with a spectacular performance. It's hard to argue that. I can't remember the look of The Unbearable Lightness of Being that well, but I mean, the cinematography here was pretty strong. I'm a little disappointed that it lost. Yeah. At the Italian, this is a funny award. At the Italian National Syndicate of Film Journalists, this film won for the Silver Ribbon for Best Male Dubbing by Roberto Chevalier for the voice for the voice of Bogosian. And the Political Film Society had their awards. This was nominated for the Human Rights Award, but lost to Mississippi Burning. He, he's asked about in that New School interview I mentioned. He's asked about the Silver Bear. She says, "What they gave you? They actually gave you." The Silver Bear Award? What is it? And his response is, yeah, I mean, I mean it's a bear. It's, it's a silver bear. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why that struck me as so funny, but that was just <laughs> like bowled over the, the professor who was interviewing him. Uh, how to do at the box office. Well, Stone went cheap for this project, working with a budget of only $4 million, or $8.6 million in today's dollars. The movie opened December 23, 1988, opposite a glut of holiday releases. Working Girl, Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, there's the big holiday release. Yeah, right. Beaches, Dangerous Liaisons, and The Accidental Tourist. Uh, this one was the lowest grossing of all new releases, opening in 19th place. It never got much better than 16th place. The film only earned $3.5 million at the box office, or $7.5 million in today's dollars. It was a loss, but not a huge one, as if Stone knew it needed to be cheap. This film ended up with an adjusted loss per finished minute of only 10000 but it wasn't low enough to end Stone's career. And interestingly, both Stone and Bogosian have come out saying that, you know, it was a tough film, and they both you kind of faulted the studio for really pushing it at award season. Like it was a really hard, dark film to try finding its audience at this particular point in time. So fascinating. Yeah. All right. Now, can we do flick chart? Flick chart. Head over to the flickchart.com slash the next reel and you'll see all the movies we've talked about in this very show. If you swipe over in your show notes and you tap the word flick chart, it'll take you to this movie in the flick chart database where you can add it to your list and see how it stands up against ours. First up, talk radio or La Cage à Fall. Talk radio. Talk radio. Talk radio or platoon. Talk radio. Talk radio. <laughs> talk radio or Creed. <laughs> talk radio. Creed. Think mm. about it. Just for a minute, think about it. It's okay. Mm. But it's Creed. I know. I'm really torn on this one. Yeah. Both really strong films. I feel like I'm going to say Creed, but I'm okay. Let me let me just check something. I, oh no! I, okay, I'll give I'll give you Creed. Okay, Creed. Talk radio or The Shining. This came uh, up on my own, and I, I had to go with The Shining. You had to. Yeah, it's The Shining. I'm I'm having to go in and. I'm I'm checking Flickchart to see where I actually did rank this. <laughs> uh, nope, Talk Radio. Wow. Okay, here we go. One, One two, two, three, three. Paper, paper, rock, paper. Oh, talk Radio I takes it. I cover you. I cover <laughs> your rock. Talk Radio or Fight Club? Fight Club. Come on. I'd like to see a mashup of that. Talk Radio Fight Club. 
Talk Fight Radio Club. Like, 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 you know, Champlain brings people into his studio to fight. Yeah, to fight them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talk Radio or Kramer versus Kramer? Talk Radio. Kramer versus Kramer. Oh, God, you children of divorce. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> All right, here we go. One, One two, two, three. three. Rock. Scissors. <laughs> Talk radio takes it. Yeah, I should have given it to you just for that because that was so funny. <laughs> Talk radio or the innocence. The innocence uh, for me. Oh, really? I'm thrilled that that it, it, that it's ended up so high for you. This is yeah, great. no, it's it's very very high. I mean, I'm I am talk radio on this. Like, if I go legitimately, it would totally mess up my flick chart if I didn't say talk radio. All right, that's fine. Talk, uh, the innocence. Let's let's do it. All right, one, one, two, two, three, three, paper, paper. Scissors. scissors, paper, scissors. Hey, oh, you cheated me there. The you stalled. <laughs> you stalled on number three. I didn't. I didn't. You're talk a radio. Staller. Talk radio or the red shoes. Talk radio. Talk radio. Talk radio or the hot rock. Oh, talk radio, but you know, with a big heart for the hot rock. Yeah, I also talk radio. Also, that lands talk radio in spot eighty-two on our chart. Eighty-two out of four hundred. 99 films, Pete. This this series that we're in will hit 500. I just I just have to remind you of oh, how beautiful. exciting that is. Yeah, that is uh, so Talk exciting. Radio, spot 82 on our chart. That's an 84%. Pretty high. Yes, it is. Now, it is masterful, but ever with all of the fighting that we just did, all of the name-calling, mudslinging, <laughs> how, how does two on your list? Because it did pretty darn well on mine. It did well on mine, too. I'm Not just well going enough. to tell you, I'm going to tell you, I have a lot more films on my chart than you do, and I have a lot of the films that, that this lost to on, on this list higher than it still. But it landed in spot 134 out of 4,585. That's a 97% on my chart. Oh, wow, let, you beat me. You beat me. Let me tell me. you, I was really surprised. I was like, should I re-rank this? Yeah. I feel like I have to do some re-ranking, but still, I was like, you know what? I'm okay leaving it there for now. No, if anything, we've proven that my list is a hot garbage fire <laughs> of re-ranking possibility. But still, this landed at, um, where did it land? At uh, 93 out of 1492, uh, which puts it at 94% uh, on my list. Now, according to the algorithm, if I go over to letterbox.com slash the next reel, this should be a four and a half star film. I, it's a five star film. I don't know where the stars would fall. I can't say it. It's a five-star film. I have no qualms recommending this to other film lovers. None. You know where I landed with this? Three and a half stars. The same place as you. What? Yes. yes. No That's quibbles right. here. I, Screw you, quibbles. Just, I, I, was, I was just honestly completely taken. I was so surprised that this film uh, did what it did. I'm like, that is really a strong film that... No one talks about. So yeah, it's, <laughs> no it's, one talks about. What is yeah. up with that? I don't know. Yeah. I, I like, can't. I mean, more people talk about eight million too. ways to die than this movie. <laughs> what? Oh dear. Yes. Now this was a this was a, a big surprise, and if for no other reason, I'm thrilled to have done this series to discover this film. Me too. What a shining shining star. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Where do we go from here? 
Believe it or not, this series is coming to an end. This this epic 10 film series covering all of Oliver Stone's films through the 1980s, starting with The Hand. We will be ending 1989 with Born on the Fourth of July, the second film of his Vietnam trilogy. Outstanding. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterbox giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. Every time Letterboxd giveth is giveth. 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 Uh, I've got a uh, one star. I went uh, south of the border. Oh, no. Dear. I went to the bottom of the well. I mm. went to Hades. No. Uh, this is from Movie Genius, who gives it a one star and says, Performances are all terrific. Top of his game, Robert Richardson shoots the hell out of this to make radio, you know, cinematic. And Stone directs the hell out of it to make some kind of point about the intersections of stupidity and hatred and how freedom of speech is an intangible reward in and of itself, as well as a prompt for very tangible violent punishments. But the dialogue supplied by Eric Bogosian, essentially the primary auteur here, working with two co-auteurs, fails to enlighten or entertain in any way, somehow simultaneously pointing, pointedly didactic and maddeningly nonspecific. This is a script that's sadly still relevant, but doesn't accomplish anything in the way of progress via exposure and thoughtful exploration of some important topics. It's admirable for a play or film to address this stuff without pulling punches, without deferring to political correctness, but that bravery is less applause-worthy when its mode of articulation is all force and no grace. An Uzi that sprays but doesn't successfully pierce any targets. I wonder what Bobcat Goldthwait, God bless America, thinks of talk radio. Hmm. I know. It's kind of an oucher. Not very funny. No. And I disagree no. with it. But, hey, people gots to have their opinions. That's what Letterboxd is for, right, Pete? What do you got? All right. I've got a uh, two-star review uh, by Good Buddy Gord, who says, uh, split diopter much? <laughs> Not for me, but I get why I've heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> I do like Lucas, Lucas, Lucas with a two-star. Podcasters are braver than our troops. <laughs> yeah, Thanks, right. Lucas. I'm sure you're not being serious, but I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, hey, if you want to get on the fun, uh, don't forget, Letterbox has a deal for you. Get 20% off uh, with the code NEXTREAL if you want to upgrade to Premiere or Patron status over at Letterboxd and um, and get your fancy uh, own account. Comes with lots of perks, lots of lists, lots of goodness. We're all on it. We love it. If you want to hang out, talk with movie people, get your discount today. Use a code NEXTREAL at checkout. Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. 
If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>